Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Good morning. I'm Rick Kelly, retired 18 Delta. Since the inception of Special Forces, the nature and locations of their missions often leave these guys in areas without medical infrastructure or support. Working with indigenous populations and forces leaves these guys responsible for the well-being of not just his teammates, but the populace he's working with. Whether it be the indigenous fighter or a member of the village that's caught up in the strife, the Special Forces medic has been taught to perform a few basic life-saving surgical procedures to help with the success of his mission. Since the beginning of armed conflict, extremity wounds are by far the most numerous in those who survive to receive surgery. Extremity wounds can be not only limb-threatening, but also life-threatening. The heavily contaminated nature of these wounds can easily overwhelm the immune system and result in sepsis and death. So beginning in Vietnam and just about every conflict since, the Special Forces medic has provided such life-saving surgical procedures in the absence of higher echelons of care. So my objective today is to enlighten all the healthcare providers that have the opportunity to advise and support Special Forces medics in order to reduce misunderstandings and confusion when providing this needed support by understanding what the Special Forces medic has taught and why you'll better understand how to assist him. So I want to point out what people think about austere. All right. And so I'm going to quickly show you a few slides about austere medicine when we're talking about conventional military medical units. And then what we base our training on is the International Committee of the Red Cross and SF Medics. So here's a picture of a Ford surgical team. They're in country. They're away from a facility. Here we have a ward. This is military medicine in an austere environment. So we know that the conditions of a Ford surgical team what they work under is much more challenging to them than working in a fixed treatment facility. Uh, the Ford surgical team does have a lot of luxuries that the 18 Delta will not have. This is rightfully so. Our troops deserve the best Ford medical treatment in the world. They deserve it. So here's a picture of some folks in the ICRC getting ready to perform a surgical procedure. Once again, ICRC forming a surgical procedure, we can see the conditions are much different than military medicine. And here's a picture of a ward. More than likely, if a SF medic is out here doing this, this is the type of ward that they're going to have. And so you can see there is a difference between someone's meaning of austere medicine and other groups' meaning of austere medicine. The International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, has been highly successful without many of the luxuries that an American Ford surgical team has. 18 Deltas will be working in a condition much more aligned with the ICRC than they will a Ford surgical team. This is why we adopted the ICRC. I got this old chart, military medicine triad, and we take evidence-based results and the equipment and resources, and that's manpower, all that stuff put together over on the other side, and the actual environment that they're working in. What we expect out of the SF medic is much more aligned with what the ICRC, and the ICRC has proven evidence in the same, using the same equipment and resources and in the same environment. We teach monitored anesthesia care. We teach uh, sedation uh, accompanied with regional nerve blocks. We do sciatic, femoral, the posterior approach to the inner scaling. 
and all associated lower blocks. We also teach IV ketamine bumps or drips with Tiva accompanied with a, a benzodiazepine. This course was, when it was set up way back in the day, Vietnam, they based all their stuff on emergency war surgery. And although that's a very good book, a lot of it is written under the assumption that, look, I'm in this situation, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to get someone to someone else. After we did that for a while, in the 90s, we became aware of what the ICRC was doing and under the conditions that they were doing things in. So we started to implement the ICRC back in the mid-1990s. People changed. We had someone come in, take over the surgery, and his background was that he was an OR tech. And so they kind of reverted back to NATO emergency war surgery and a lot of stuff that was modern in how you would do things in the hospital. They started conventional treatments and became inundated with procedural and equipment upgrades that you would find in any kind of westernized uh, surgical unit. That was a big problem because SF medics are not going to have those resources, they're not going to have that equipment, and they're not going to be in that environment. But in 2009, we changed it back and reinstituted the ICRC method. What we teach now, we teach the subjects we teach is wound excision, we teach closure, DPC and secondary intent, fasciotomy for the lower leg and forearm, and amputation. They only use items that are inherent to their medical tactical set and only with the personnel that they will have. So they have two medics on a team at the most. They'll have teammates, but they're not medics. And so this is how they train. The 18 Delta that receive war wounded patients, most of these patients that they see, these wounds are often a few days old and they're infected, they got problems. And not only are they going to be a prolonged care provider for this patient, they're probably going to be the definitive care provider. There's no one that's going to disagree that conventional techniques, by far, is a better way to treat these type of injuries. They preserve function better by retaining more tissue with less scarring in addition to decreasing pain and healing times in situations that are relatively clean. Time is available, manpower is available, and supplies are available. And so we agree that this is a better way of doing business if you have these luxuries. But the 18 Delta will never have these luxuries. They are not going to be in a clean environment. They are not going to have the time. They're not going to have the people. And they're not going to have the supplies. So what we learned... We learned that during the conventional way of performing the surgery, and that's back when they, they were using a full OR staff. They, have, they had scrub techs, they had circulators, they had all these people running around doing things that, as you normally would in an OR. They had high-tech, power-hungry equipment. They had basic packs, they had drape packs, they had pulsatile irrigators, they had bovies, wall suction, they had all this. They had all this stuff that they are not going to have down range. So two things that we immediately changed, we discontinued the use of the bovies and discontinued the use of uh, high pressure pulsatile lavage systems. Okay, so when instituting the ICRC method, we have one medic who is the surgeon, we have one medic who provides the anesthesia, and we, they have one or two helpers in the room. And all they do is what they're asked to do. They use all the equipment that's inherent to the 18 Delta tax set. Using the conventional methods, generally, and I, and I and I am being I'm being generous by being conservative on these numbers. That thirty to fifty percent, I believe, 
the post-op infection rates were probably actually higher than that. Look, if you don't crack this this wound open to the dirty environment, then dirt isn't going to get into the wound and cause a problem. And these guys are going to be operating in dirty environments. It's it's just that way. So now, uh, using the ICRC method, now we're experiencing 1%. So look at the numbers. If if I'm being generous by being conservative and saying 30 to 50%, and now we're now we're at 1%, that has to tell you something. Almost all can be contributed to having the bandage come off the wound prior to the DPC. And that's either by mistake or purposeful. It used to be more purposeful because they allowed that wound to be exposed to the environment. They soon learned, don't do that, because if you don't do that, you're not going to get an infection. Some end up getting saturated with water. Of course, that's going to get infected. A very small percent due to missing something during excision or incising long enough, not separating the involved muscles uh, determine the full extent of the injury. And then a very small percent post-closure due to closure under tension. And so pretty much all that we ever see is that a bandage comes off of the wound in between the time of excision and closure. So when I was active duty and I was I was here in the 90s, I, we had the uh, opportunity to meet Dr. Robin Copeland. At that time, he was the surgical director for the ICRC. And we would talk. He gave lectures, but he gave he gave an example of a conflict in which the important people in the conflict that that got wounded had their wounds tended to daily. And the unimportant people, they were just thrown in the bowels of the ward and just forgotten about. And but the ones that had their dressings changed every day suffered great infection. But the ones that were left forgotten and no one tended to their wounds on a daily basis. Well, a week later, when they went back in to look at their wounds, they were all fine. And for him, that really struck a chord. And he said, well, maybe this is the way we ought to be doing business. And so a guy like that tells me this. And then we do this and we implement this and we see the results of doing this. It's hard to argue against. So here's the references that we use. The ICRC references. And so they're designed. They're, these books aren't written for guys like us knuckle draggers. They're, they're written for doctors. They're written for surgeons and non-surgical physicians who enlist into their services for the ICRC working in those kind of conditions. And so they're telling these guys, look, leave your Western way of medicine behind because we have to do things differently here to be successful. They've been successfully treating patients under these conditions for decades and they literally wrote the books on it. This is exactly what we're expecting from our special forces medics. I'm going to show you the references that we use. And many of them, you can just go to ICRC website. They have PDF free. You just download the PDF versions. You read them. There's all kinds of good information in there. Then we have war surgery, working with limited resources in armed conflicts and other situations of violence, volume one. This one is downloadable. I don't have enough time to talk about amputation and fasciotomy. We teach the standard two incision, four compartment release of the lower leg and forearm as advocated by the uh, Institute of Surgical Research. But these guys, uh, they do 24-7 nursing care. So all that post-operative care, and they always have the ability to call 24-7. So why the ICR method works for us? One, 
the references are really easy to understand. And two, it's basic. These guys just beat a dead horse talking about basics. And we don't have a lot of time to teach these guys. It's easy to remember. It's easy to retain. If they can remember the basics, the basic principles, they can get out there and they can do some good. So we take young, talented enlisted men. We give them only the bare and crude necessities to perform the procedure. We give them a few instruments, a few gauze packs, some cloth drapes. They sterilize in a pressure cooker. They sterilize all their stuff in a pressure cooker. They use formaldehyde or glutaraldehyde. And with all this, this deck of cards, it's stacked way against them. These guys are highly successful. And I get guys come back for every two years for their recertification. And I have guys look me up and say, hey, Mr. Kelly, look what I did downrange. And they're successful. They can do this by doing it the way that we teach them. This is an average SF medical surgical pack. You can see not a lot of instruments there. We got cloth, cloth hand towels for sterile drape. Uh, it's the basics. Here's how they sterilize things. It's the actual sterilizer that's in their kit, that pressure cooker. And then they got a jar for cold sterilization. And then we tell them, hey, just go down to the bazaar, buy yourself a, a toaster oven, and at least you can, you can sterilize instruments. So who are these guys? These guys are extremely well-trained Special Forces med medical sergeants. They, they are not medics whose primary mission is to provide medical care. These men are part of a small team whose primary mission, their primary mission is to go out and perform combat missions. That's their mission. Being a medic is secondary. Their mission set dictates their time utilization. This is only one constraint. SF often work in split teams or cells in which individuals, each individual is needed for a successful combat mission. So what are some of these other constraints? And supplies is definitely one of them. A team usually deploys with a pilot, sometimes two, but mostly one pilot. Pilot space is shared with personal equipment, weapon systems, demo, ammo, communication commu equipment, other tools needed for the mission, food, all kinds of miscellaneous stuff, as well as the medical gear, all right? Resupply may or may not be available when needed, especially in the amounts that are needed. Manpower, there's only two medics on a detachment. There's others that know a little bit about medicine, mostly about T-Tri-C. So just to kind of get a, get a look on supplies here, there's a medical tax set up in, up in the upper corner. And if you can see that red square on that pallet, that red square doesn't go all the way across that pallet. That's just that little corner. That's your medical equipment. That's what you're deploying with. And that could be six-month supply. You don't have a lot of stuff. You got all kinds of stuff and you don't deploy saying, oh, I'm going to go do surgery. You, you know you're going to be pulling sick call. You know you're going to treat battlefield injuries. That's it. Here we get to the supplies issue. So here's all the supplies and you need to do these procedures. And we can see there's a bunch of supplies there. We can see what the trash is. After this is over, we got biological waste and we got regular waste. And we just for one procedure, we got enough supplies being used and enough trash being manufactured. So if we ended up doing tr twice daily dressing changes, we're looking at all, all these supplies. And then we're looking at all that trash that we would see. Medical waste in a non-permissive environment. You know, a lot of times you're... These guys are going to be somewhere where they're not supposed to be, and they can't leave a signature. And you can't be out there burning a bunch of trash 
or disposing of all this biological waste that you're making because you're probably not going to have it to begin with because you don't deploy with that much stuff. Then you got to talk about the man hours. Initial procedure, figure about 10 man hours. You got uh, our initial assessment and then you got to do your labs. Then you gotta do the procedure and then you got post-op monitoring. And so you got you got all this time involved. And you remember, this is not the medic's primary mission. He needs to be out doing combat missions and he's got other things he's got to do for the United States of America. So what does this what does it mean? It means even when the SF medic exercises economy of supplies and time and motion, conventional treatments will overtax a medic, medic situation and probably have an unsuccessful outcome. So these men will be performing in truly, truly austere medicine, it, not just operating in an austere country. Uh, they perform these procedures to save lives and limbs, usually old, mismanaged, or neglected wounds of indigenous people. And they are often the definitive provider, right? Because these guys are, are definitely going to call someone up and say, can you send someone, or if we bring them to you, will you take them? And what they get is the answer, no. That's if there's even anyone in country, and then now they're stuck with them. They have to be able to do something for these people. Although the ICRC does mention serial debridement in the references, they don't practice this because they don't have the time, they don't have the supplies, and they don't have the manpower. And for the same reasons as the ICRC, we don't recommend this for the SF medic either unless he knows for a fact that he's going to clean a little bit out and then that patient is going to be in the hands of a qualified surgeon within a day or two. Okay, this is just a little chart. It's uh, about how you manage wounds and dressing changes and all that. It's, it's in the slideshow. You guys can look it over at your leisure. So we teach these men the basics of wound care, which work. It works for the graduate, graduates of this course, OCONUS, and for the ICRC. Everything is performed in true austere conditions and working with limited resources. So hopefully an understanding of what these men are taught, along with their mission set and corresponding constraints, will enable providers relate and give appropriate device to these. And so I, I want to thank all of you for, for listening to me. And I guess that's it. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.